Happy Thanksgiving from the Aquarium Guys podcast and joeshrimpshack.com. In honor of Black Friday, Joe Shrimp Shack is going to be having an additional sale for 20% off all plants and livestock and 15% off Shrimp King and all hardscape materials in store only. If you order online, you can go and use promo code AquariumGuys at checkout for 15% off the entire rest of the store. The in-store special is only good through Sunday. If you do go in person, there's a drawing for all qualified purchases over $50 or more gets you a chance to win a Shrimp King 10-gallon starter kit valued at $250. It will be drawn Tuesday in a group live video on Facebook. Again, thank you to JoeShrimpShack.com for sponsoring this podcast. Also, don't forget about Reef Flowers and Cobalt Aquatics Aquascaping Competition. Submissions close December 3rd, and you could win grand prize of aquariums directly from Cobalt Reef Flower Supplies. Certainly check it out. The link is in the description. Sign up, and you can set up multiple tanks. There is no limit. Also, Aquarium Guys merch store has relaunched with new designs, a lot of fun designs. There's throat punching memes, talking about how endlers are feeder guppies, even a really cool certified Aquarium Guys logo. Check it out. Use promo code either Robs, R-O-B-B-Z, Adam, or Jimmy at checkout to prove who's your favorite person from the Aquarium Guys for 5% off in the new merch store. Please help us. It really does support us in a great way. Keep the lights on. Keep this podcast rolling. Now let's kick that podcast. Welcome to the Aquarium Guys podcast with your hosts, Jim Colby and Rob Zolson. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. Jimmy, I'm glad to see you're here. We got a first like real snowstorm going on in a while. Yeah, we had a little bit of snow today. Your 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 bread truck didn't flail all over the road. I was able to get her max out about forty five miles an hour today. Cooking, cooking, cooking man, cooking with gas. Yep, cooking. Well, I'm your host, Rob Zolson. I'm Jim Colby, and I'm Adam Elnashar. And today, our wonderful guest that we've been looking forward to for a while now is Ivan uh, Miko. Miko, oh, I keep God, butchering the name. Suck. You I, suck. I, I prepared three times before this. Please, could you could you pronounce it for me? Mikoji. Mikoji. Uh, yep. I always want to say Miko, Makoji. All right, Makoji. So some people call me Iko. Iko, I love it. Well, Ivan, thanks so much for coming on the show. We we appreciate your time, and you're coming all the way from uh, Venezuela. So for those that are listening, if they hear the audio quality a bit scratchy, that's really what we can do with the uh, with the internet, right? Uh, about where he lives right now. Before we get into uh, too many topics. Um, we're all gathering together today for your new book release, and it just released. Is that correct? Yes. Um, yeah, it released a short while ago. It was printing, and uh, now it's all bounded, and uh, it's going to start shipping in a week. Wonderful. So he wrote the book "Fishes of the Orinoco," but Ivan is well known for making uh, documentaries about different fish habitats and just generally where our hobby come from. And we're just tickle pink to be able to uh, read the book beforehand, go over some of your expeditions that have gone over, it looks like, many years. And uh, instead of having, like, an information topic, we just want to hear your stories on making of this book and uh, the matter behind it. So, again, thank you so much. You're most welcome. Thank you for having me. Like we do every other podcast, before we get into the deep dive and interview with Ivan, we got a couple questions from our listeners. If you want to put in a question to us, go to AquariumGuysPodcast.com. And you will find in the bottom of the website, 
our email address, phone number to call or text, however you want to leave us a message. And we got a couple this week, Jimmy. Everybody we know? Well, says here from LJ, he's messaged us before, says, um, besides quarantining, what would you treat a fish with anything preventative, like maybe aquarium co-op meds trio or something similar? So he's been asking, when you get a new fish in, should you just medicate blindly? You know, what would you put in a, a tank? And I know this is definitely something that you and I do very differently, Jimmy. If I get a fish in, I'm going to, like like we always preach, salt. Use some salt if you can, depending on the fish breed and if there's plants in there. Otherwise, I'm not treating for anything I don't see. Most of the bags that you get from, like, wholesalers already come with some uh, medications, maybe a touch of clove oil, uh, methylene blue. I'm not going to treat it in my tank. I'm going to leave it quarantined. And unless I see it, I'm not going to medicate it. Now, you, on the other hand, have a very old-school method and successful method. What do you recommend, Jimmy? Well, normally when I bring stuff in, the difference between between Rob's and I, Rob's is picking some stuff up maybe from the pet store or another person. Right. The individual shipper. I'm not getting 300 at a crack. Yeah, so I'm importing. And so normally what I like to do is uh, bring the fish in, um, and I like to hedge my bet. And when I say hedge my bet is if I got a bag of 300 neons, I like to split that up to three different tanks. And anything that you import, what I'm generally, if you can get past the first three or four days, usually that will take you out of the woods. But if you start having problems at three to four days, it's very hard to get these fish back up on their on their little fins. So um, I use several types of uh, chemicals that um, for receiving fish. One's called Receiver One. I know it sounds stupid. The other one's called Receiver Two. There used to be a company out there called Chem Aqua who are no longer in business, but I had bought uh, several kilos of this stuff years ago. You treat the water, and uh, like Rob said, there's some methane blue in there. There's some uh, things in there that are antifungal, some stuff to help them breathe. I like to treat everything uh, before it gets sick. uh, The best advice I ever got from uh, anybody was Paul Norton, uh, Norton, Tampa Bay Fisheries, and he's always said, you can keep a healthy fish healthy, but it's the son of a gun to get a sick fish healthy. So I like to do preventative care, but that's me because I bring it from all over the world. And I think there's a big lack, like you said, all these brands and stuff that I used to have, like, blasting medications. Now, really, uh, they don't offer a ton of them. You know, they're taking a lot of medications away from the shelves, whether it be, you know, trying, because most of the medications they use, at least to some extent, were intended for humans at one point. Whether it's antibiotics or something else, and they've been just pulled from the shelves over the years, and it's getting worse and worse. So, we no longer have, like, these broad-spectrum, you know, cure-alls that we try to use as preventative. At least there's not as many. But, yeah, it depends on your application, and if you're hedging your bet or just getting a few in. Yeah, I'd like to keep, like I said, if I get 300 neons, I'd like to take three different tanks and treat them all the same thing. But uh, that way, if, if you happen to have uh, some neons that crap out on you and they skunk up the tank while you're away from the, your, your shop overnight and stuff, you don't lose all 300. You might lose 100, which sounds terrible, but losing 100 or one-third of your batch is better than losing everything. But there are so many cool things out there that you can use. Um, but another good thing to do is when you bring the stuff in, especially if you're bringing uh, stuff from overseas, is uh, after you get them acclimated, you get them in the tank and stuff, leave them in the dark for about 24 hours. Only put the light on to kind of check on them to see if they got ick, to see if they've got any, any problems breathing. But for some reason, that 24 hours um, really seems to help if they're in the dark because these fish are hung over. You have to realize that they probably were shipped on a Thursday from... Uh, Venezuela. Venezuela, Colombia. <laughs> Ivan packed it for us. Probably you know. packed it for us, yeah. <laughs> wink, wink. And um, so that comes in uh, ship Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, finally into my area on Monday. 
they've been in uh, in and out of a bag, you know, three or four times. And, and the more you handle the fish, the more stress you put upon it. So giving it a, a overnight or 24 hours in the dark to kind of uh, relax and kind of veg out, uh, it seems to be very helpful. I never believed in that. And then uh, I learned that from another friend of ours that that really does help. Like when they're transporting horses or anything, you know, putting them in a, in a darker area, even like uh, cats or they've proven that with gators. If they, you know, cover up their eyes, they're yes. a lot more calmer during transport. It's just a natural given thing without almost any animal. Yeah, Nat Geo right now is running uh, a whole bunch of different zoos. Uh, the Columbus Zoo has uh, its own series. A zoo in North Carolina has their own series. And every time you see you move uh, a large mammal or reptiles or whatever it may be, the first thing you do is they cl- they cover the eyes of the animal with a towel or a blanket just to get it to calm down. Because, uh, they, of course, all animals want to do is they want to either fight or flight. And so, the, of course, uh, the adrenaline starts pumping on these animals. So it's just best to, to keep them uh, kind of in the dark to uh, stay calm and not freak out. Now, the second part of that question, because they preemptively knew I was going to say use aquarium salt because that's what you use for every generic treatment, is uh, how much would you recommend using? Look at the back of your container of aquarium salt. They have recommended usage for, you know, just a, uh, not necessarily medical treatment, but just uh, for the benefit of the tank or trying to use for quarantine purposes. But we always like, I, I always like do one tablespoon per three gallons. That's generally a, a recommendation just for, a, a but um, I'm trying to think of the word, not botanical, but just a um, general use treatment that you're not just treating a medic, uh, a disease for, you're just being safe and adding a little salt to the water for the benefit of the tank. Yeah, the um, my friends over at Seagrass Farms have, have always told me um, when you're treating fish in that you're importing, and a lot of the fish that, that uh, Seagrass has has been imported, probably been there two or three days, and you probably need to continue that a little bit once you get them to yourself. Um, but if, if you want to be a little more aggressive, one teaspoon per gallon is what they recommend. Uh, two teaspoons per gallon will put you into the brackish area. Right. One teaspoon per gallon is literally how you like treat sores or anything that you would treat on a fish. And uh, be careful. Um, people say that you can just put it right in the, the tank directly. But know what fish you have. If you've got you know, bottom-dwelling fish or fish that are dumb enough to like swallow it, don't put it in there. I've had Corridor's fins burnt right off just because I didn't know any better. Yeah, I, for for me, um, if you have a back filter, sometimes it's easier just to put the salt in the back filter, and it it, it uh, gets diluted a little bit faster. But it also uh, doesn't sit on the bottom of the tank and just kind of fall apart, and the fish pick at it. Well, I think we covered that question. So the next question is a review. So if you're listening to this, we try to record episodes ahead of time. So like for us, it's two weeks ago that we did uh, story time three. So we had uh, Joanne message us. Again, we, we leave last names. Uh, Hello, Robs, Adam, and Jim. You know, I love the podcast and appreciate you guys what you do a lot. The Thunderdome story has been keeping me up at night, and I had to write. <laughs> losing a child seems to be the most awful experience a parent can have. I have a daughter and can't imagine how terrible it would be losing her. So please know that I empathize for the situation, but I still believe that there's no excuse Intentional animal abuse is never okay. I feel badly for that poor fish. I'm with Adam. They should never have sold them. If you know they're going to be tormented and abused. End of my rant. See you on the next podcast. Love what you do. So you better explain that a little bit to people. What if right. they miss that? So we do uh, story time. It's a series that we do in the podcast where we just uh, when we started the podcast, we we wanted to do each episode of the aquarium guys to be a topic. 
So you can go back and learn about a type of fish, learn about how to do care, learn how to build a tank, whatever it is that you would want, and have a evergreen library of resources. So you can go back and talk to the experts that we've had or listen to the experts that we've had on the podcast. And we've had, of course, tangents because Jimmy, Adam, and I, you know, we're, we're humans and we like to giggle about things that are off topic as well. We had fans that apparently enjoyed some of our banter and asked, hey, can you please put together just an episode of just your stories? So that's what we did, and now it's by popular demand that people demand it. So we, you know, have Jimmy crack a beer, we all get around a metaphorical campfire and bring some friends on, and we talk about crazy things that have happened in our in our past, mostly aquarium-related. And one of them last week was a uh, apparently a leukemia patient, or what could be assumed as a leukemia patient. Or maybe even a make-a-wish patient. Coming in for their, like, last wish of getting their aquarium. And it was a young 10-year-old, 12-year-old? Yeah, if I remember it, right. Definitely uh, a decision where it's definitely in the moral gray, but we're not going to cover things up just because, uh, you know, we, we think that it's uh, too harsh for ears. Um, we have an explicit label on it. We, we didn't say anything bad about the person, but again, it basically came down to the kid wanted a bunch of fish in a tank that probably would hurt each other. Um, and the, just for the kids, what seeming to be last wish. So it was certainly a scenario to put yourself in. And we consider that a story of success because it made people feel things, whatever side they were on, if they were for the kid, for the fish, but regardless, it was an awkward scenario. And and in our guest defense, it was our guest that was working at the pet store. Right. He, he told the family and the child many, 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 many times that these fish would not get along. And then finally at the end, he the kid knew this and he just wanted to have chaos in his tank. I want a chaos in tank. So I don't know where you put yeah. yourself in the moral compass, but... You know, it made people realize they have a moral compass. And that, I feel like that's a good enough job uh, for if we can do that on a two-hour podcast. Well, thanks for the uh, the information. And uh, again, we never condone animal abuse of any kind. But we will treat, punch the crap out of each other. Treat your friends right. Punch your... Uh, punch your friend in the throat. <laughs> treat your fish right. Punch your friend in the throat. There you right. go. Thank you. <laughs> All right. That is what we got for questions. Uh, moral of the story is, Ivan, you clearly need to listen to that story time three. Yeah. <laughs> he fell asleep. He's, he's watching TV right uh-huh. now. Now he's going like, what in the world is this uh, this all about? But Ivan, again, we appreciate you coming on, man. We got uh, we got so many questions. Uh, you know, we normally don't have a ton of homework. We try to, you know, brush ourselves up on the topic. We're not experts on everything that we have uh, people on for, for sure. And uh, most of the time, I would put almost all of the time, a guest always knows more than uh, us on a topic. So um, getting a book for homework was about the most fun I've had in the last two weeks. So thank you, Ivan. You're most welcome. So Ivan, before we get into this, we want to uh, you know, know a little bit more about you. So what got you into this, this hobby? And again, just for background, what got you into uh, doing expeditions? in uh, crazy areas where these wonderful um, areas of wildlife are? Oh, man. To me, it came quite easy. You know, there's a lot of people that spend their life and they don't know what they want to do. And to me, since I was a kid, I was always, it was a calling, you know. Uh, Everybody in in school, when they they came out to recess, they wanted to play Foursquare or basketball or soccer. And I just wanted to go out and explore. We had a big mountain in the back of the school. And the mountain is quite virgin. So there's pit vipers, rattlesnakes, coral snakes. And I'd bring, I'd go in there instead of playing 
and bring them, you know, bring back a rattlesnake or something. And that, you know, that's, that's all I wanted to do. So it's quite, it was clear enough for me. Where did you grow up that, that was, you didn't get expelled for that? He's going to get so, he's going to get along so well with Adam and all these poisonous things that he, they right? both love. <laughs> I grew up in um, between two cities in Venezuela, between Caracas and Valencia. And uh, we, my, we lived in these two places. We had two houses. And depending where my parents had more work, we would move. And every time we moved, the first thing I put in the car was the aquarium. So I've been an aquarium guy since I was a kid. Wonderful. And it just came, completely came natural. No family member got you into it. You're like, you know, that's, that's just my calling. Well, the, the aquarium is from my, my father was Croatian, my mother from Nicaragua, and they met here. So I'm like a parrot cichlid or something, uh, you know. Um, <laughs> we won't tell. Don't worry. <laughs> and um, so, but my father was the one that always had an aquarium at home. But the exploring came. I was, it, it was just me. It, it, you know, when the kids, for example, in seventh or grade or something, they went, they wanted to go to the movies or to the mall to hang out. I was going into caves, you know, I, I, I was, I was going, I was always exploring. So did, did your parents encourage this or did they not know about this? Cause I can't imagine having your young child run out to the cave would be an ideal situation. Uh, they did not encourage it. And, uh, it was, it was, there's a good story about the cage actually. Well, let's hear it. But, um, well, <laughs> uh, I guess like, it was probably seventh grade, and we had a driver that would bring us to school. It was far away. I would always tell him, listen, drop me off here in the after school in the caves. It's like a national park, and it's a mountain. You'd go to the caves. And the caves here would not be like probably in the U.S. or somewhere else where it's, uh, you have a boardwalk or something. This was like the bush. And the caves, nobody would go in. So he would drop me off. I would tell him, listen, pick me up in two hours. And I'd go in and come out after two hours and, you know, wait for him and go home. But one day I wanted him to come with me. I wanted to show the, the driver what I was doing. And he didn't want to go, but I bribed him. And to bribe him, I gave him a pack of cigarettes and a pack of matches. <laughs> I bought him that and he agreed and he went with me. And we went deep in these caves, very deep, like, these, there's, 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 it's totally virgin practically. And I don't know, we were a quarter mile down or something and the flashlight hit a rock and it turned off. I feel like and, this is the beginning of a good movie. <laughs> so this is like a Tuesday, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon. Nobody was going to go there. Not even probably in a week or more. So we got out with the last match from the cigarettes that I bribed them. So smoking saved us. Attaboy. The first time that, <laughs> that smoking was, was something that saved my life. So that was one of the incidents. But did, that's what I did. That's what I did after school. Did your parents find out about that? They were working all the time. I, and I was outside in the bush. That's a fantastic story. I, I suddenly uh, i am going to keep smokes and matches on me at all times. <laughs> I was like, what are you, a pack a day? Well, like, no, no, that's emergency only. Emergency, emergency light. So yeah. I have so many questions, but first, what brand? Was it like Newport's, Marlboro's? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. So we're, now we're, we're here today, and you're pretty famous, uh, especially on, on the likes of you, like YouTube. I, I know that's well, like, where I knew you before. 
is from your uh, documentaries that you've done in the past, and you've really uh, brought some light to how these uh, aquarium fish are in the wild. And now you have the uh, book that's, again, coming out, uh, it's, it's being shipped in a week, Fishes of the Orinoco in the Wild, and Breathtaking, gotta say. Was this a collection of multiple expeditions, or was this like one, like, two-month span of you going out just for this book? Well, this, this started, uh, the earliest picture in there is from 2008. So that was a five megapixel camera when the five megapixels were like, wow, you know, you had, a, a, it, it was, it came, I had a three megapixel. And when I got the five, it was like, I had the best camera in the world. So it, it, the first, so it's from 2008 to right now, what is it? 12 years of photography in there. Right. So you've done this length of 12 years of different expeditions for different purposes and mapped out how these species are and locations. Um, you have a map in the beginning of the book and how it preludes. And for those that don't know, you need to go buy this book. Well, again, the link is in the show notes for those that are listening. There is a promo code. It's Aquarium Guys 5. It's 5% off the book. Certainly hop on it for all that's listening. But again, right this when you a good book. it's a great book. It so is a good book. Yes. Right when you start off, it, it tells you a little bit more about you and how the uh, book got started. But it also gives this wonderful map. How are these territories that are normally labeled like that, or was it just people in the area that just call it the territory? Because you even have places called the Lost World. You know, it, it's it, it seems almost uh, Indiana Jones like, if you will. Well, the the, the areas are. Named, for example, the, the Lost World is the, the Canaima National Park. But oh. in the Conan Doyle story, that's where the Lost World, that's, that's what it was called. That's where the Conan Doyle uh, novel came from, like, and where the, the Disney movies come from, the Tepuis, you know, and all those flat tops and the waterfalls. So that's, the, that's called the Lost World, right? And um, I placed the name of the places in the way that we call them, you know, when we, when we go somewhere and after 10 years of being there, we call it, we give it a name. That's the name that is in the book. So it's, it's sort of a romantic name, but it does show you, it does tell you what the place is like. It really does um, give a, a full picture and it is following inlets and outlets all across the uh, Orinoco river, which goes across the spans of the, the top of South America but it, it's not just like the river it's focusing on because it, it's such a massive maze of water features feeding into the Orinoco that is really the impressive part that really paints a picture. Yeah, yeah, and, and each area is unique. For example, you got the Lost World area that for me is like a nursery because it's all it's it's all these little streams that are crystal clear and they all flow. It, it's every. Every hundred yards, there's there's a new stream and a new spring that comes out of the ground. So it's like the it's a nursery of rivers. You know that's like where the water is born. So it's 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 very it's. You see, I was traveling for so many years, but I never knew how to put this book together because when I started, I was always looking at the things that I didn't have to see. For example, when I started, I was always swatting the mosquitoes getting stuck in the mud. And that's all what I saw. Now, nowadays, um, the mud and the mosquitoes are still there, but I'm looking at different things. I'm looking at the behavior and how everything relates. 
So I had to grow to be able to do the book. It took me 15 years to take the pictures, but it, it, you know, I only felt with the authority to do it 15 years after. I mean, it really does paint an experience. I did, honestly, I had no idea what I was coming into this book. I figured it was going to talk about the expedition, some of your hurdles, you know, showing off some of the treasures you found, but not 15 years of mapping out different species, writing their biotope behaviors. It really paints a picture on each different species. It's, it's like taking a traditional fish manual. Um, that you would normally get, like I always mentioned before, like the Axel Rod Eye um, book in the past that was like made in the 1950s. It's really popularized. People buy a tropical fish manual and it just gives you what's popular in the hobby. This takes the entire top part of Central America and maps out fish, not in necessarily just the you know, genus and uh, temperature and size and pH, but you paint a picture on how you experienced it live in front of you in their natural habitat and what's going on to them right now. We don't get that in any other book. It, it's, it's something else. So how you said that over time you had to grow yourself to figure out how to, to capture this, you know, how, I want to know where did in the world did you, did you take notes per species? How did you gather this? You said that you just took pictures. What was your intent going out 15 years ago? and start capturing all of this documentary-wise? Well, um, I was always exploring, like I told you, right? And I was always into photography. My sister gave me my first camera, and since then I was always either painting, because I painted before. I was either painting, exploring, or taking pictures. But um, I never, and I was always drawn to water, rivers, the ocean, always near bodies of water. But I could never put it together until I met Oliver Lucanus. And once I met Oliver, Oliver Lucanus and I saw him working in the wild, then it's when I say, hey, this is what it makes sense. I love photography. I love exploring. This is exactly what I should be doing. And I never could put two and two, uh, one and one together to make two until I met Oliver. So he's to blame. Well, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll make sure to... You know, send him compliments uh, quite yeah. quite soon. I don't know about blame. So, how did you meet him? Uh, well, he came down. I used to have I used to have a discus breeding, like a discus hatchery. I had a big discus hatchery, and it got so big that I saturated the national market, and I needed to export. So, looking for a way to export them, I met people that would say, "Listen." We don't want discus. We want, um, like Oliver Lucanus, we want this rare piranha that comes out in that river. So I started going to the river, looking for that piranha. I would find it, and I started shipping them to him. So he's like, listen, can you bring me down and show me where you're getting all these fish? And I brought him down. And the light bulbs suddenly went off. We need to make a book. Well, were you ever worried about, like, maybe is this guy just going to see where I'm getting all this stuff and then just kind of sidestep you? <laughs> That'd be, that might be the first thing I would think. In my mind, because if, if it's somebody you don't really know, no, I don't think so. We, I, I had my, my discus hatchery was really big, and um, uh, it was probably uh, six thousand uh, six thousand square feet. That's a, that's a lot of real estate. That's a lot of real estate. Was, we were we were we were changing. I don't know, like fifteen thousand liters of water a day, acidifying it. We're, 
we had a lot of discus. So um, I wasn't, I wasn't, I actually was happy when he came and he showed me all of this, of how he did it. You know, I was really thankful and I owe it, I owe it all to him. So Adam, you had, you, I know you did a bunch of homework on this and you were eager to get some questions out for, uh, for Ivan. Let's start with some of your questions. So it's, it's said in your book, in your book that, um, the Cardinal Tetras, that they break off into smaller schools as uh, in the daytime, and then they form like one big school at night. How did you like? Did you see them disperse early in the morning, or did they get together at night? Because I was always under the impression that Corey, uh, that Cardinal Tetras would just always in one big school. This this is the thing. Uh, when we go to exploring, for example, to a little stream. Uh, we pick a spot, and which is not uh, probably 20 or 30 yards long. And we stay in this spot, for example, eight days. Oh. And, and we get there at 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning because I have to video or photograph the sunrise. And um, we're there all day. And once at night, you sometimes have to stay to photograph or video the fish that come out by night or to video the sunset. So we're there from 4.30 in the morning to 7 o'clock at night every day for eight days. So you see the behavior of all the fish. And cardinal tetras, during the, in, when, when it's uh, dusk starts coming, they all gather together. Those smaller schools, they all start gathering together. They start all going and staying in one place. They, they, they stop schooling far. You know, they have a, an area probably 20 yards long where they school back and forth and they never go out of that area. And then they stay in one place and that's what they do. And then in the morning they go again and they disperse into smaller schools. That's, that's their behavior. Do you think that they get together in a larger school for protection? Um, from, from, from predators? Probably, yeah, probably it's a sense of, of, of feeling. I don't know. Probably it's, that's, Maybe like what a baby. I guess. I, I was just thinking, you know, for, you know, there's there's uh, safety in numbers, and if, if a predator, predator comes in real fast, and you've got a huge school, you're more likely to live through it if you can, you know, if you can run faster than your friend. That whole thing. <laughs> Listen, there's so many incredible behaviors that we don't get to see in the aquarium because our aquariums are not equipped for it. For example, uh, if if you go, if I bring you down. And I bring it to a certain river, and you see it's crystal clear. You're floating there, and you see a tree trunk that fell down from the forest, right? When the water edge erodes and the tree falls down. And if the tree stays three, two to three feet underwater and not deeper, it becomes a biotope of five or six different species. If it's deeper, they're not there anymore. So if you find that tree trunk at that level, there's fish that live on top of the tree trunk. There's fish that live behind it. And there's fish that live under it. And that's where you'll find them. But if you don't have the current, and you don't have it at a certain depth in your aquarium, you'll never know. That's what I liked about this book was that it told, it said so much about the behaviors that was just interesting stuff. Um, the, the big one that I personally liked was the rummy nose uh, Tetra's one. That was uh, one I was just about to say myself. That uh, that took me away. If I remember correctly, 
you you stated that anytime that you see a rummy nose tetra school or what you call a fire nose tetra, almost always there'd be a stingray underneath. Oh yeah, that's that's the rule. And it, it works. And you're you're there if you see the schooling in the same spot because rummy noses have a also a uh, let's say like a nine or ten meter range. That's their range. They go back and forth, and that's all they do all day long. Um, they never go out of this range. So if you see them schooling around in one circle, there's a stingray under them. And they go down and they, they bite the stingray. It's the skin or the parasites that are on them, I guess, or the dead skin. But that's what they do. I know and I, this is probably not known. This is probably not known, no, but I, I have it on video. I have it on video and I have it from four or five different vi- rivers that are really far away from each other with different species. Even with Motoro or with Obrini, they, they do it with different species, too, of stingrays. The, the whole book covers this, this uh, mantra that we take a species that we may or may not know. It gives you an idea of one that's identified, and then it gives you the element of what you saw them in, the behaviors they saw, what's happening to their area, stuff that you normally never get in another fish book where they just tell you, it's like, oh, seems semi-aggressive, you know, don't keep with these species, they like these types of food. Instead, you're just you're painting a separate picture. You're like these guys stay in this is uh, sort of an area. Uh, they're almost always found in this. This is how I saw them feed stuff that no one has insight in unless they've literally done expeditions for years. So, like even when you said like the Romeo's Tetras, absolutely that's not documented in other books. I mean, I've studied Romeo's Tetras. I have two hundred of them on hand right now in a ninety gallon aquarium. You know, they do that back and forth motion all day and then i put a log in and suddenly they're they're grazing on it uh and the the log was covered in little bugs when i put it in sure enough maybe the same behavior as stingray but there's no way i can you know even pretend to know what that is because they're not in a river system i don't have that blanket to you know map that and it gives us perspective that we can try to re-emulate ourselves versus just having someone giving their theory of what they saw happen in a 20 gallon tank well I'm going to give you a, a little um, secret. If you read the book six or seven times and you really study it and map it out, you're going to understand that everything in there relates. So when you hear the Rummy Nose Tetra and you're reading the Cardinal Tetra, you'll understand how they relate with each other and which fish goes next from there. Is, does that make sense? Yeah. It it certainly does. I mean, I'm talking about one species at a time. But if you look well and you see the plants that are related, and you see the pHs, and you see the areas, you're going to understand that these fish overlap with each other, and they're all related in some way. Like if it, it would be like being in the river, you'd you'd know that the cardinal tetra is going to be there, the Acestorhynchus are going to be here, the, the the geophagus are going to be here. So you can map out the whole system. The whole book is a whole system. So it sort of acts and like like a neighborhood. Where you've got- it is, yes, and a very diverse one. Yes. So, Adam, what are your yes. other questions you got for Ivan? The uh, farewellas. Did you see those more active at night, or are they uh, are they nocturnal or diurnal? Because diurnal. they had great ice. They're diurnal. Okay. See, everybody says that they're nocturnal in the books. In the old books that I have, they say they only come out at night. 
and they're diurnal. That's that's what I was interested in because that's not in. I have some books from the fifties, the the old Axelrod books, and even some of the old Care books that I have from even as early as the late like early two thousands. They all say farewells are nocturnal. Treat them just like a pleco. Plecos are nocturnal. But these are diurnal, so that is important to note, which you wouldn't have even known. And most people don't keep them, but I like them. And it, it was just interesting stuff. Like I, I thought about with the Rummy Nose Tetras, why couldn't you put Rummy Nose Tetras with your Stingrays? Well, be good for the water quality with your Rummy Nose. Exactly. But you, you see, the, the, the thing is with Fire Luella's is that you won't find them anywhere where they're not being, let's say, water blasted or sand blasted. Oh, you won't find them in the stretch of the river where there's no current. They're not there. They don't live there. So you have to go where the river um, narrows out, where it narrows in, sorry, and it gets, um, it reduces in width and the water starts flowing faster and all whatever branch falls in there starts vibrating, you know, up and down with the, with the current. It's so strong. And that's where you'll find them. If you look somewhere else, you'll, you'll be there all your life. You won't find one. Okay, that makes total sense now because I've had them. And I always wondered because they never really said how to keep. Whenever I'd keep them in my store, I'd always just say, yeah, they're, just treat them like a regular Pleco. I wouldn't think of a fast moving current. If you have a fast moving current um, five feet in front of you and you're in the part where the pool starts, you'll never see it. You'll never find them. Gotcha. See, this is so, why people need this book. <laughs> yeah. So well, the, the thing is, that I, the book was intended to be a coffee table book, right? Yes. So, so there's limited amount of information. There's a lot of more information that did not fit. We're trying to make a new, uh, there's, we, I think there's six or seven areas that we cover in the book. And we're, we want to make a series of six smaller books, uh, probably soft cover, smaller books that go in depth in each area that will explain things. For example, that, uh, uh, Ram cichlids have like apartment buildings, all these behaviors that, that you see in the wild that nobody knows about, right. Until you're there for years. And so we'll, we'll, we'll try to cover it more in depth, um, in future books, but it, you know, this was intended more as a, uh, say like a coffee table light reading book, you know, but it's, it has very good information. in it. So we're not going to be able to get through the whole book with you over, over a podcast for sure. But what I want is, uh, you know, stuff that maybe wasn't in the book or wasn't interpreted, like some of the, the stories, some of the, the crazier parts of making the book, you know, going out in the expedition, what are some of the things that just absolutely took you and, and surprised you like no other stuff that you never expected to happen? that uh, clearly went in an opposite direction you were never expecting? Oh, there's many. There's Every trip with, has its own. But um, we have, I have a show on, on YouTube that we made many years ago titled The Fish Guys, and it's, it shows you how we did the expeditions, right? It's like the back, the camera facing towards us, and it shows you what we did, what we spoke about, where we went. But we went to this small stream. And there was a lot of green aquatic plants that look like little, like Eleocharis, probably like pipes, little strings of, of like a wig, a very green wig floating around. 
And George Fear was netting these wigs, and he captured a green Farlowella, electric green. And all its back was checkerboard like a chessboard in black. So it was black and green checkerboard Farlowella. So he starts yelling, and I swim downstream where he was. I, we see the thing in the net. We start jumping in, up and down, hugging each other because it was like it, it was like emerald fluorescent green with checkerboard. And the thing jumped out of the net and went in the river. And we were there for three more days, and we never found it. So oh, things like that. <laughs> so things like that. You feel like you need a film crew by you at all times just to prove these things. Like, no, 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 it's not a fish story. I'm telling you, it glow. It has yeah. glowing eyes. It, yeah, it would sell like crazy. Oh, checkerboard! Like that's you know those Vans um, uh, uh, shoes. Yeah, yeah, I have a pair. Yeah, but green, green and black. Wonderful! You got to find yeah, that. Go back, make some money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we were there for three days. You know, uh, we combed the place and we couldn't find it. Now, what's some species that you found? Because again, fifteen years is a long time, and I know even on your YouTube channel, one of your most popular YouTube videos is, you know, new unidentified Playco, and, it, you know, tell us some of the stories, like, of stuff that you guys maybe discovered or didn't know a whole lot about. Um, well, the latest one is freshwater sponges. So... You didn't know about um, those? Well, we we found these, not the small ones, we found some big ones. Really? Uh, yeah, we found some big waters, uh, freshwater sponges, that have muscles in them too. So they live sympatrically with muscles and they're big. They're not like, uh, usually the freshwater sponges, they're flat and you know, they're, they're they stick to a, a tree trunk or to a rock, but they're, they're really thin. They're not bulging out like the ocean ones, right? These bulge out. So how big are so, we talking? Uh, we're talking about that. They bulge out. I have one around here. Oh. You have one. <laughs> yeah. Have yeah, it's a yeah, yeah, it's yeah. now a loofah yeah, on a yeah. stick. Yeah, because we, we had to I had to bring them back to to photograph them and put them in the museum. So um they they probably have a height of over an inch or more. That's definitely sizable. Pretty, yeah, probably yeah, like two two inches, which is a lot. For a freshwater sponge. And, and a freshwater and, sponge in that area, which is uh, and to my knowledge unheard of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so we find we find a lot of new species of sponge, of freshwater sponges, we electrical green ones. But um, I've I've seen many fish that I can't capture because they're too deep. Probably I've seen things that look like uh, green crinicetula. Green curly what? Uh, green crinicetula. They look like a, a, a how do you call this a pike cichlid? Wow, but green, but they're too deep, and I I, I never use scuba diving equipment because. As I tell you, we spend 10, 10 days, 12 hours a day. You know, we climb up waterfall. You can't bring cylinders and cylinders of air. So um, we, we always do, you know, we, we do snorkeling. And uh, when, you, when I, go, I, I, I go down five meters, but after five meters, I can't stay much down. <laughs> it's not like I'm a, a super duper, you know, uh, I can't hold my breath for more than 40 seconds a minute. So I, you know, I video it or take a picture and I go up back up. But you see some things that are really strange, but, you know, you, it's, I, I, we sometimes capture them. We once captured something that looked like the weirdest fish we've ever captured looked like, uh, I don't know, let's say, uh, 
I'm feeling like there's going to be a, a pulp a seahorse. Con- Imagine a seahorse, those dragon seahorses. Right. Leafy dragons, yeah. Okay, the dragons. But take all that, you know, the things that stick out, just the fish itself. No. Without all the, the fins and all that, you know, seaweed-looking things. So kind of like and, it was a, a sea dragon. Yeah, so, for example, let's say if you've got a, 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 like a trumpet fish or something, and then you made it really crooked, like a, a, a Z or something, but it was a fish. And we found it in the leaf, leaf litter. So, again, we were so happy. We put it in a bag. We were going to put it in formaldehyde. Our friend said, no, I don't want to put it in formaldehyde because it's alive. I want to bring it in alive. And he forgot it in the, under the car uh, seat. No. And after three days of heat, everything was rotted and the thing was disintegrated. But it was the weirdest thing in the world. So there's a lot of things that need to be discovered still. So how you gave us a map on, on these areas. How... You know, populated are these areas? How many people are in there? Is this, uh, you know, pretty deep in some forest where there haven't been people for ages? Some of the the Western Guiana, some parts of the Western Guiana Shield that we have pictures of, for example, the Cories, the um, uh, no, uh, La Ciencistrus. Oh my God, I forgot. Um, Tenticolatus, I think it is in there. La Ciencistrus. Those were taken on top of the Chavirita Falls. And I think nobody has been up there, only us. It's it's a place where nobody. We I tried to go up there the first time with Oliver, and we can only get to the base of it. And then uh, after two expeditions, we were able to go up to the top of the fall. So there's places that are really remote. I always trying to imagine, you know, like uh, our, our little clip of it. Like we watch like Jeremy Wade on River Monsters. And it takes like two weeks to get to the one point where they want to try to find something and then find this massive, you know, Arapaima that no one's ever discovered. I'm just trying to like imagine that. And you guys are finding, you know, crazy, uh, you know, close to sea dragons, checkered colored fish. You're really painting us uh, as a picture. I feel like there needs to be a a full on like Indiana Jones movie that needs to be done there. (laughs) Well, watch the watch the fish guys and you'll see how we did it. It's uh, uh, the, when you watch that uh, series we have there, there's two expeditions uploaded from beginning to end. The third one, we didn't upload the whole thing. Try if you see it, you're going to see that there's a lot of us tucking in the car because all these areas, when you go down here to the Amazon, the, there's no airports and the few airports that are there, they don't have place to rent a car. So you have to drive there. So, for example, to if you go to the Lost World, the first day you drive 13 hours. The next day you drive 12 hours. And then every day after that, you drive six hours. And so you spend hours on end in the car. The expedition is 90% in the car and then 10% in the water because no, you- you're driving all the time. So, so um, you have to keep that in mind when you're watching the fish guys. We wanted to show you what it's really like. So there's a lot of car footage. Are you guys sleeping in the car then at night, or are you guys throwing up a tent? Sometimes sometimes we sleep in the tent. Usually we try to sleep in a town because we have to um, charge all the batteries from the cameras. Oh. And I also need to check the pictures I take because um, if, if you have like a out of – remember, I have to have in focus is the eye. If the eye is not in focus, then a magazine won't take it, for example. So you have to check if you were if you were photographing, let's say, a, a killifish, and you have to check all the pictures you have of that killifish before you leave that area for eight hours away. You have to check if you got one with, you know, where the eye is in focus. So you have to check them on your computer. So every night you have to go through thousands of pictures 
just checking to see what you did to see if you got you got it in the can or not. It's a lot of work. I'm exhausted just listening to all this. I'm just I, a- I swallowed a lot of water to do that book. <laughs> so when you're in the Orinoco, um, is there any, uh, you know, like South American river dolphins in that river? Yep. We got, and we also got manatees. Oh, you have manatees as well. I didn't know. I thought that yeah. was, for some reason, I thought that was like a North American stable and we like had the only collective of them. No, we have them here and the, we have now, we, there seems to be two species of freshwater dolphins here. Really? There's, uh, there's a rapid called the Aturus and Maipurus rapids down in the Amazon state here in Venezuela, in the border with Colombia. And these rapids are so strong and so, um, so violent that the freshwater dolphins haven't been able to go up or down for millions of years. So now it seems like the ones on top of the river are a different species or subspecies. My friends are doing now all the DNA and all the scientific research. So what is it like interacting with, uh, with a river dolphin? It's just like such an alien world to me. Just trying to think of a dolphin just going down a river. Are they more aggressive? Are they more curious? You know, are, are you, is this something you got to be wary about, like stealing your equipment? <laughs> you know, how, how many times have they ate your photographic evidence? Listen, right. I've never, I, I've seen them a lot in the wild, but I've never swam with them in the wild. Okay. These, these, um, they're, once you stop, uh, if they go next to your boat, once you get out, they, they flee, they go, they, they don't, they don't come up to you. Okay. If they come up to you, it's a place where they've been trained, where people are feeding them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Gotcha. It's, it's, yeah. It's, I, I've been swimming for 15 years, and none have come up to me and said hi, you know, and swam around with me. A few years back, Robs and I, uh, we were down in uh, Florida, and there's one place, uh, Clear River, south of Tampa, where you're, it's the only place you legally can go swimming in the manatees in the United States. And the Florida DNR is right there kind of watching. And uh, I've done it twice. Rob's and I've done it once. And uh, the manatees there are very friendly, and uh, you can get some great photographs and stuff. But uh, yeah, they don't really care about you. They'll nope. they'll push you over to get a good chunk of you know ocean lettuce or whatever's there in front of them. So that was very they're very much fun for us. Uh, I was amazed at how large these creatures are. I got I got a very good iconic picture of freshwater dolphins, and they were taken here in a. There's an aquarium in my town called the Valencia Aquarium, and it was the only place where they had them in captivity and they were breeding them and they had them trained. They had did it like a show, like in like in SeaWorld, but with the freshwater ones. So when I when, when I wasn't going on expeditions, I'd go there on every Monday when they do maintenance and they let me jump in and swim with them. So I would swim with them, you know, and take a thousand pictures. You know, so I have thousands of pictures of these freshwater dolphins, but they're all in this humongous pool. You know, they're, 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 they're not in the wild. Gotcha. I, I, I shot them from the bottom towards the top. So it looks, you can't see the walls of the aquarium and stuff, but they're not in the wild. It's, it's, they, I have never had the chance to get them to come close to them. But once you're in the, the aquarium, they, they try to get your gear. They take your snorkel off. You have, you know, they, 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 you have to be careful. They don't puncture your, your housing. Um, and they're, they're always, they're so bored probably in there too, you know, that they want to play with you. So what are some of the, you know, biggest dangers and risks of going out in the uh, middle of the Orokonoko and trying to capture all of these on uh, pictures and film? Um, the gorilla. A what? <laughs> the gorilla. 
like <laughs> the actual gorillas. Like uh, I'm assuming that I'm assuming that's not the animal. I'm assuming we're talking about some sort of people. The people, yes, people, humans, humans. So the real dangers are is humans. Poachers, uh, drug yeah. cartel. What are we talking All about? All of that. All of that. Whatever it is, that's the only thing we're afraid of. You know, I, I've, 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 you know, I've, I've swam with the coral snakes, with electric eels, with caiman, with all of this. But I'm really scared is of people, humans. So, have you ever found a white lobster? A white? Yeah, a, a white lobster, like a bale of cocaine, just floating down the river randomly. <laughs> <laughs> I was going, where the hell are you going with this? No, no, we've 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 we found them uh, with a lot of. I have many. I have many stories, but I can't tell them like this. Oh, <laughs> his life well, will be in danger. Are we gonna have to many, wait for book three? Stories. But in one of the fish guys, you could see some. Hey, can, in one of the episodes. Can Can you tell us uh, like an older story that's safe to give us a hint? None of them are safe. <laughs> no, no. You, in the fish guys, you see a part where they're 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 smuggling a lot of gasoline and stuff, and and there's drums and barrels, uh, hundreds of drums and barrels, and people just smuggling them. But you can see it, you know, in the in, in the video. So once you run into this fine group of people. Once they find out you're just a fish geek, do they leave you alone or do they razz you quite a bit? Uh, <laughs> all right. It's Next classified, question. Jimmy. Listen, listen, listen. You know uh, that Oliver and I once, he, he always said, listen, I want to go and find some of them because that would be the best picture to take a picture of you with them, you know, in the wild with their machine guns and stuff. But once you're there and they're with their machine guns, you don't want to take out your camera. No, of course not. So, you know, I, I, I've dealt with them. I've been there. But the first thing they say is don't touch the camera, and I don't want to touch it. I mean, that, that's only that's, fair. That's a good idea. That is you know, only fair. Follow, follow the instructions, and I'm still here. <laughs> so as you go to these places over and over again, do you run into some of the same ones, or is it always somebody new? Somebody new. Okay, I was going to say, I hear they replace their help a lot. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. just saying they don't have they're Somebody li- new and the rules change and the situation changes and whatever they're doing changes, whatever the goods are changes. It's always different. Are you saying the cartel union doesn't do their job, Jimmy? How dare you? Yeah, no, don't give my address. I'm good. How dare you? All right. So out of all of this, because again, the whole idea is you're, you're painting us a picture of what you're experiencing with all these different species and their natural habitat and how they all, you know, have different effects. You know, some of these you, you even paint out of some of the habitat that's happening. So out of all the areas, you know, what's the um, what's the, the issues that are happening to some of the habitat and specifics in some of these areas? Okay, um, specifics. Well, you, you see, there's a mix of them. And I'll give you an example. There's river near, well, not near my house, like an hour and away, called the Limon River. And the, the Limon River is, there's pictures in the book of the Limon River. There's pictures of Poesilia and uh, of Plecos. But that river, um, I think like 20 years ago, had a tragedy where, I guess for global warming or something, there was a big landslide, right? It rained so much that the, the, the river uh, filled up and all the fish that were in there got drained into the Lake of Valencia, right? Now, because there's a town in between uh, the, the mountain where it's born and the Lake of Valencia, there's a barrier by humans, which is pollution, right? 
the, the, the river gets polluted in the bottom, so the fish can't go back up, okay? So now you've got an extinction there that was natural, or natural, it was a nature, but the river can't get more fish in it because there's pollution along the way. So there's many causes. Every, every, every place is a different situation, but usually it's people involved, as usual, you know? And we have treated our rivers as badly as in Europe and as badly as North America has and Central America. Everybody has treated their rivers bad, right? Nobody gets out clean. So is it just the, the, the pollution that you see um, or is there – here's a for instance, right? We, we see in a lot of North America um, species being wiped out over the past 100 years. Um, even in our own area, because again, we're in Minnesota, uh, we have around 18,000 lakes in Minnesota. It's really dense of water. And we've seen river systems that have set up different, uh, you know, small port damming where we thought that fish could go through, but they couldn't. And we've killed off, you know, species of sturgeon. And even in our own, we're close to Fargo, North Dakota. And even in our own Red River up here, um, they had to reintroduce sturgeon. They had to rebuild uh, different flows on dams so uh, fish could get past. And, you know, it takes 20 years for them to mature. So now we're 25 years in. We're seeing the first, you know, babies of sturgeon reintroduced. Is it just pollution or is there, there damming going on in the Orinoco? The Orinoco uh, doesn't have any damming. It, what there is is mining. There's oil rigs. There's... Uh, you, you name it. For example, in the area called the Llanos that you see in the book, if you if you drill for looking for water, for example, if you want to make a well, you'll get you get sulfur and you'll get gas, and you know you have to patch it all the way down because if you know the government finds out, they'll you know it's government owned. It's not like in the U.S. where you hit jackpot and you find gas or you know. So um, it, whatever whatever gets drilled, everything spills into the river. So it's 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 a problem. With oil, you know, petroleum, oil spills, um, it's mostly human, human, human related. But there's, you know, that's, that's the way it goes. We, as I tell you, we've treated them as bad as anywhere else. Adam, do you have anything else on your, uh, your list? I, I know we could derailed from it. Well, it's, a, um, I just have so many questions and it's, I don't want to wreck his other books. I'm excited <laughs> now that there's going to be more care because literally kid in a candy it, store right now. Yeah. So it's like the care stuff is important because like it just opens your eyes at a new way of keeping something. So like now I'm going to actually when I get my room up, I'm going to put rummy nose Tetras with my with stingrays because and then I'm thinking, you know, I can check the I'll know the water quality because if the rummy noses noses are bad, then my stingrays water quality is probably going to be bad. And then I won't have to worry about death curl. Plus, they'll pick the parasites off. Did you notice? All the piranhas are fin nippers, right? So they, or do they attack smaller fish and eat the smaller fish in the wild? Um, Pygocentris cariba, they, they attack um, a lot of schools of fish, but they oh. eat them whole because they're, they're, they're larger piranhas. But the fin nippers are usually juvenile piranhas or the species which are um, the, fin, the, the fin nippers, right? Yeah. Okay. Because I was just wondering, because I didn't, I was, Trying to understand if adults, if some of the piranhas were fin nippers on bigger fish, or if they would just they would just go to eat smaller fish. Well, depends. Remember, you you've got a system. For example, the the, um, the flooded areas, the flooded savanna. 
If you go to the flooded savannah, you've got thousands of acres of crystal clear water. And piranhas are sparse in there. There's 11 or 12 species. But if you put five piranhas in a, I don't know, 50-gallon or 40-gallon aquarium, it's different. The, the, what, what I, my observation in the wild is completely different than confined in a glass aquarium, right? Yeah. They're, they're gonna, if you put a piranha, five piranhas in a small aquarium, uh, it's it's totally different than if you put them in uh, 20 acres of water. The behavior is probably going to be different, too. The same with the rummy nose tetras. Probably if you put the rummy nose tetras in with the stingrays, the stingrays, when it goes six meters deep, it gets a break from the rummy nose. But if you keep them in an aquarium confined with the rummy nose, they're going to be biting that thing all the time. Yeah. So I don't know if they're going to hurt them. So it's, 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 these are all observations of how they do in the wild. It's like a natural history, you know, what was there at the moment and what, what they do. Wonderful. So we asked you before, uh, again, trying to discover new species, and you told us a, a lot of different examples. Have you ever found species that were thought to be extinct in the area, but then suddenly appeared? Because, I mean, you said you're filming for eight days at a crack in one area. Yeah, well, we, we found species, for example, I got a, a, a article on my website, which I published on um, PFH a long time ago. It was Chrysobrichon chirospinus. That was a piranha that was um, described with one sample. Nobody knew what it looked like live. It was a dead sample in a museum, and they described it with just that thing. So they, I went to the type locality, and I went to look for them, and I took the first live pictures of the fish in the wild. Well, in ever live pictures ever. And um, the same happened with Sarasalmus nelsoni, which is a piranha, which is endemic from the Uricoa River. And the same with Sarasalmus nevariensis, which is another piranha. There was a time where they called me the piranha man because the piranha man, because I was photographing all these piranhas that had never been photographed before. And the same happens with other things, but Listen, my, my inventory of plant photographs of, or flowers in the wild is much bigger than the fish one. But people know me for the fish. But the same happens with the orchids. I got pictures of new species of orchids. I got species of orchids that had been described, but nobody knew what they looked like alive. Because they, they described it from a dead sample, which was dry, and they didn't know what color it was. So, but people don't know me for that. They know me for the fish. But I want to put that in the other books. I went in the books I want to do. I want to do them, for example, like the Equinoxfield trips of Humboldt, where it's like a captain's log of what you see every day and the plants that were next to it. When you're down in, in the Amazon and you see all these neon tetras and there's no aquatic plants practically, but all the edge of the water is full of, how do you call these things? Venus flytraps. And they're full of all these carnivorous plants that are right along the edge of the water because they, they live in that moisture. That's the aquatic plants that live with them because they swim around them. The neon tetras are swimming around uh, carnivorous plants. Nobody knows that. Do any of those plants go after the fish? I mean, that would be kind of cool. <laughs> I'll pay 10 bucks to see that. Yep. Yeah. So I have to write all of that down, and I will. <laughs> I got it on video, too. So Wonderful. Um, I need the time. Oh, I just want to have, like, a, a book of each topic. Like, one of the uh, stuff you've discovered, stuff that you thought was extinct, stuff that's never been mapped before. I, I like your slogan on your website. It uh, says you, you can't, uh, let me pull it up here again, because I'm, I'm actually looking down your articles. You said that you can't preserve something 
that you don't know exists that uh, really is proven here. You think of the world as being this, you know, explored mapped place, but I mean, just, you know, these small points that you get in some of these, uh, these fish just prove on how out of touch we are with even like the common everyday species of fish that we have in our aquariums, much less all these other species we really traditionally don't hear much about. And the fish are starving when they are in areas where there's no trees. And why is that? Because 90% of the food they eat comes from the Comes from the tree, you said? Yeah, from the trees, from the canopy up so there. Explain oh, that man. Explain that process to some of our, 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 our uh, more uh, beginner aquarists. Like, how, do, how does trees provide the food for the fish? The leaves go in, tannins, it breaks down, creates micronutrients. Well, what, are you, what are you speaking of? No, I'm talking about the kamikaze insects. That's what I call them, the kamikaze insects. Every time the wind blows the canopy, there's a shower of ants, termites, you name it, that um, fall into the water. And the, the highest aquatic habitats are all the bromeliads that are on the top, right? That are filled with water and filled with amphibians and frogs and lay their tadpoles on the top. Those are the highest. It, 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 the, the, the aquatic ecosystem doesn't start in the rivers, it stops up there in the canopy. You know, so, and there's all these insects that live, that they don't come out of the river, like most damselflies and other things. They come out of the canopy from the water that is up there. So there's, there's a lot to learn, you know, there's a lot of things and, and we, uh, I have to put those books together. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. I'm just, I'm just thinking of all the different things. Like I, I have more questions. <laughs> So every time the, that the trees shake out a whole bunch of insects and then they hit the water surface and the, and the fish come to feed? Yes. If you, for example, you're, you're in the, you're, you see the canopy, which is way up there, you know, um, let's say 25, 30 meters, which is 90 feet up there. And the wind blows and you, you hear it. You, the, you hear the wind and the wind sounds like rain. You sometimes think it's raining, but it's not. It's just the leaves, how it sounds. And once you hear that, the water uh, surface starts going. Bloop, bloop, bloop. The water surface starts sounding because all these insects fall and all the tetras and all the astyanax and all these things start feeding on them. And once the wind stops, the sound on the water surface stops because there's nothing else to eat on. That's incredible. So it, it makes sense. It's like an automatic fish feeder. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. But in the spots where there's no um, trees, boy, the fish are hungry in there. The fish are always starving. So if you go to some areas and you try to fish, the fish won't bite your bait. It's because they're well fed. If you go to a place where there's not so many food, not so much food, then you're probably they'll, they'll 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 bite. And this is how if you go to if you go in the book and you go to Emigramus Levi's, Emigramus Levi's, you there's a story there. And then you'll understand the story that is there about the fish that are always um, hungry. There's a nice story there. Well, moving on, you said about the other uh, other books you're doing, but what other projects are you going to be doing that's uh, that's coming up? Again, you've done a bunch of uh, film documentaries. You've done this book. You have plans for other books. Is there different expeditions in uh, other part of South America or any other location that you're planning on and doing in the future? Well, my, my problem is time. I got... Over 300,000 images. I got hundreds of hours of underwater footage and flower footage and footage of landscapes and everything. But I need the time to do them. So 
it's it's a question of prioritizing. We're trying to make a plan of what people want to see and want to know. So once we have that together, we'll know what product we are going to go with next. We're going to put out and we're going to ask people. We're going to in, in in the in the near future we're going to put out a lot of questions and ask people to see, and we'll prioritize from there. Right now, here in the United States, with the coronavirus. Uh most people got more time than they know what to do with because a lot of them are quarantining at home. Is the coronavirus affecting you guys out there? Yeah, we're still, we're, we're still confined. We never, we got it late. We started only three months ago. So we're still in the end of the first, let's say the first wave. Mm-hmm. So we got it really late and um, we have a problem here, which we have no gas, like gasoline for your car. So that is, you know, taking a toll on me going places, but I have so much, I have so many pictures and so many videos that I really don't need to go out anymore. I go out if I need something specific because I got so much. I really don't, I really don't need to put more than three. I already have 3,000, 300,000 images plus. Why am I going to go get more if there are species in there that are not even described? So I have to prioritize and see what I'm going to do next. See what is viable too, which because uh, um, I have to make a living out of it, so I have to see what people want and what people would be willing to pay for. Absolutely, yeah. You have to make choices in your life. You can't do everything, and um, so hopefully, you guys will help me do some asking questions to your community. Absolutely, and again, if you guys want to follow along with Ivan's work, certainly go to M I K O L J I dot com. That's where you'll find. All his articles that he's putting up uh, on the regular basis, his films, books, and uh, more information about the expeditions, including some of the series that he mentioned on the uh, podcast tonight. Uh, again, we can only cover so much uh, trying to review just a small picture of what Ivan has done in the Orinoco. Certainly go on his website, follow through, follow him on social media. Again, we'll have links in the description to purchase his book. Uh, promo code AquariumGuys5 for 5% off, Fishes of the Orinoco in the Wild. Ivan, it's been wonderful having you. Um, any other uh, last notes uh, towards the end of the podcast here you want to tell the audience? I'm so I'm so glad the internet hasn't failed. I'm so you know this is like a miracle. Uh, the last thing is I always tell people that the most important thing is to go out to the nearest body of water that you have and go there, get to know it. You know. Uh, uh, see what's in it, bring your kids over. And it's, it's a way to create empathy towards fresh water and whatever water you have or salt water. Just go to their body of water, bring your family, have fun there, get to know it, make it yours. And that's the only way that, you know, to make it, to put a little bit of, you know, empathy in it and make, preserve them in time. Build that sense of, build that sense of wonder for sure. I want to put uh, just one anecdotal note uh, before we leave. So I, I've been in the hobby since I've been a little kid. My grandma got me into it, and uh, I grew up in the area. And we went to Fergus Falls, Minnesota for uh, different tropical fish. Um, most of the time, there was a wonderful place called uh, Ben Franklin. And growing up, that was the best place to get fish. It had uh, a weird, uh, eclectic arrangement. You know, every uh, other week, you get a little bit of something different you've never seen before. And one of my favorite fish, and it just brought this point of nostalgia, seeing a diamond tetra in your book with wonderful pictures of it in its natural habitat. 
And for those that don't know, you can still get Diamond Tetra. They're not necessarily rare. You just don't see them. No one knows about them. They don't keep them in the, a ton of them in the hobby. And they're a gorgeous fish. They're a larger size Tetra with a wonderful curved fin. And they literally look like they're glistening with little diamonds across their uh, scales. And they have a wonderful little red tip to their eye. And no one knew anything about them, how to feed them, how to breed them. They told me, oh, it's a Tetra. Treat it like a Tetra. It'll school. I never had that luck. And then I'm reading in there this wonderful book of yours, and really getting a picture of my childhood. You know, stuff, information that I, I could never get a hold of, telling me how they were, um, how they behave in the wild, how they don't really school, you know, matching some of my details, uh, giving uh, points of, you know, how their habitat's affected and their populations are going down in certain areas. And it just, you know, resonated to like the mystery of me being uh, eight years old, 10 years old, at going to the pet store, finding this wondrous fish and just looking in there. And it brought me right back to that level again. Like, I know nothing. I'm learning about a fish for the first time. And just that uh, bit of nostalgia really paints a picture of what this this book does to avid fish keepers. I can't stress it enough. Go get this book, guys. Jimmy, thank you for being that person that got those diamond tetras at that pet store for me. That was probably me, yeah. That was certainly you. I want to read one one thing. Nice though. fish. Yeah, I want to read one 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 quick paragraph that that's in the book, and this was written by Eduardo. This is about Ivan, and I I just want you to take this to heart. It says, with more than a hundred expeditions of innumerable publications in different countries, Ivan has demonstrated the authenticity and originality of his artistic passion for photography and painting. The philosophy that moves his creative will is the urgency to preserve the aquatic ecosystems of the planet. And as a first step, he considers it necessary to make the riches and beauty of these biomes known. This is why he maintains you cannot preserve something that you don't know exists. And to that work, he has dedicated a large part of his life. And I thought that was just beautifully and well said. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to spend with us this evening and, and talk about this. This has been an incredible night. Yeah. Well, the pleasure is mine. Well, Ivan, we're going to have to have you back on again. You know, you're going to do more books. There's going to be more information, and we want to help uh, broadcast that in any way possible. But uh, for those who are listening, if you uh, enjoyed the podcast, guys, you like what you hear, help us keep the lights on. Go to AquariumGuysPodcast.com, bottom of the page. You can find a place to uh, give us a few bucks. Otherwise, support our sponsors and uh, in this book. But, uh, Ivan, thank you so much, buddy. We're going to uh, we're gonna, uh, leave it off there. We'll talk after, but... Uh, for those that are listening, catch you next week. Thanks, guys, for listening to the podcast. Please go to your favorite place where podcasts are found, whether it be Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever they can be found. Like, subscribe, and make sure you get push notifications directly to your phone so you don't miss great content like this. I never knew that a Minnesota accent could be so sexy until I heard Adam's voice. Go fuck yourself, don't you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's my boy, don't you know?